Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on the Arizona Supreme Court's recent decision on jury selection will be introduced by my co-host, Eric Luna, the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law and founder of the Academy for Justice. You can find his bio on our website. Thank you, Ashley. This is Eric Luna. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the Arizona Supreme Court's recent decision to get rid of peremptory strikes, the ability of lawyers to eliminate potential jurors without giving any reason. We'll hear from three professionals, a prosecutor, a defense attorney, and a judge here in Maricopa County to get their take on how this will impact criminal justice moving forward. We're fortunate to be joined today by the Honorable Suzanne Cohen, Associate Presiding Criminal Judge of the Maricopa County Superior Court, Ryan Green, Division Chief for Training and Post-Conviction Review with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, who is actively involved in the implementation of jury selection rules, and Kevin Head, Appellate Attorney with the Maricopa County Office of the Public Defender and a member of the Arizona State Bar's Batson Working Group. Welcome to you all. As a bit of background on courtroom practice in America, when selecting a jury in a legal case, both parties may remove potential jurors because of actual or potential bias in their decision-making. In contrast to these kinds of challenges, in most jurisdictions, the parties can eliminate a limited number of jurors without providing any reason, using so-called peremptory challenges. In 1986, the US Supreme Court held in a case called Batson versus Kentucky, that it was unconstitutional to use peremptory challenges to eliminate potential jurors because of their race. Subsequent decisions have extended that decision to other protected classes, like the use of peremptory challenges to eliminate a juror because of her gender. These decisions have also set up an elaborate procedure by which allegations of discriminatory use of jury strikes can be evaluated by a trial court. This year, the Arizona Supreme Court took things a big step further by eliminating peremptory strikes altogether. With this background, let's begin with you, Judge Cohen. You've been a prosecutor and you're now the associate presiding criminal judge here in Maricopa County. So you have a wealth of experience with criminal trials in general and with jury selection in particular. Can you tell us what types of issues you've seen over the years in relation to Batson? Sure, I guess I would start by saying in my 20 plus years in this business, I don't think I've ever come across anyone who has intentionally crossed that line where they're striking a juror because the because of race. I think what I've seen the most is really poor records being made as to why they want to strike a juror. And if they're striking a juror who's a minority race or a female, 
they're not laying the record as to why they want to do that. Um, maybe I'm living, you know, in an ivory <laughs> ivory world with with rose colored glasses. And let me say that again. Maybe I'm just living with rose colored glasses. Um, but I think that's mostly what I've seen is folks are not making good records and they're not asking the appropriate questions. And the latest couple of cases that we've seen come down from the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court is because of that, is because the lawyers aren't making good records. They're not asking the judge to ask more questions about why someone's being struck for peremptories. So, so that's what I've seen in my 20 years doing that, if that answers your question. It does. And just as a quick follow up, uh, as a matter of background, the rules previously allowed the prosecution and defense to exercise between two and maybe 10 peremptory challenges, depending on the severity of the uh, criminal charge. And during COVID, those challenges were limited to two per side. Would you would you have preferred to have just simply substantially cut back on the number of peremptory challenges rather than eliminating them altogether? So I was asked this question by the folks that were making this decision. And I answered it in two ways. I answered it as a judge. And then I answered it as a lawyer, because sometimes folks forget that, you know, judges are still lawyers. As a former trial lawyer, I did not want to lose the preemptories. I liked it. I liked it for a lot of reasons. um, And I wish it would have come back. As a judge, I like the fact that the preemptories are gone, because quite frankly, it speeds up jury selection. And during our world right now, with COVID still in place and us doing limited trials, we have to get jury selection done in a shorter time frame. I think that's going to change once we lose preemptories because of the things that need to be hap- need to happen once we lose preemptories. So I had a little conversation with myself. The judge said, that's fine. Let him go away. The trial lawyer and me said, oh, I really want to keep those preemptories. Thank you, Judge Cohen. Mr. Head, you were on the State Bar Batson Working Group, as well as other groups concerned about criminal juries. Can you tell us a bit about the work of these groups? And what was the interaction between these groups and various proposals and the ultimate petition calling upon the Arizona Supreme Court to eliminate peremptory strikes? Sure. So in January 2020, as a member of the Central Arizona National Lawyers Guild, I filed a petition with the Arizona Supreme Court to adopt uh, what was passed in Washington as General Rule 37. And what Washington did uh, about five years ago now is uh, pass a Batson reform, which removed the focus from intentional discrimination to the to the, the real possibility that jurors were being stricken for by, uh, based on bias for reasons that even the person striking them might not be able to articulate. And so that touching on a, a comment from Judge Cohen about not seeing intentional bias play out in the jury selection process. It's been my experience that jurors of color in particular, Black jurors and Native American jurors, are stricken disproportionately through the peremptory strike process. And whether you can prove that that was intentional or maybe the product of implicit bias, the numbers supported a conclusion that bias was playing a role in the way in which peremptory strikes have been exercised. And so the, what Washington did was, was propo- uh, adopt an alternative to Batson uh, that uh, instead of requiring proof that the striking party struck the juror intentionally with, uh, for a discriminatory purpose, it requires judges to look at, as an objective observer, considering the totality of the circumstances, whether an objective observer would believe that the strike was uh, motivated for a discriminatory purpose. And this took out of this of the Batson framework, this uneasy question that judges are faced under Batson is, 
is the striking party acting with an intentional, purposeful, discriminatory purpose? And instead, uh, makes it an objective question as to, is bias playing a role here? Is there a discriminatory reason underlying the, the thoughts for the strikes? And so that was the proposal that I filed uh, with the Supreme Court on behalf of the National Lawyers Guild. And I, I took the proposal to the state bar's Civil Practice and Procedure Committee and the Criminal Practice and Procedure Committee. I was looking for support for the proposal. The Civil Practice and Procedure Committee recommended that it be studied. And so they reached out and formed a Batson working group that was composed of members of both the Civil Practice and Procedure Committee and the Criminal Practice and Procedure Committee, as well as other stakeholders, uh, someone from the ACLU, a professor from ASU Law, uh, to study Washington's proposal and alternatives and determine whether or not to recommend implementation of the Washington rule. And so we met for about six months. Um, Judge Swan uh, from the Court of Appeals was on that working group. Judge Gates from the Maricopa County Superior Court was on the working group. Some attorneys from Mr. Green's office, uh, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, were on the working group. And at, at the end of the process, the recommendation was to take what the rule was in Washington and expand it so it included more than just race, to include sex, gender, and sexual orientation, disability, and religion, and, and submit that proposal to the Supreme Court. Well, during that time, Judge Swan and Judge McMurdy made an alternative proposal. Rather than try to tinker with the Batson framework and amend it to incorporate uh, an, an assessment of implicit bias, Judge Swan and Judge McMurdy concluded that it'd be uh, easier and more efficient and fair just to eliminate peremptory strikes in their entirety. And so they submitted a competing proposal. And that's what was before the Supreme Court this last year were these two competing proposals um, uh, as a means of fixing what largely has been deemed a failure, Batson's failure to root out discrimination in the jury selection process. And during that time, uh, the Arizona Supreme Court created a task force on jury data collection practices and procedures. And that involved a, a separate stakeholder group of judges, uh, judicial employees, clerks of the court, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and civil lawyers to look at the jury selection process from start to finish, from how jurors are brought into the courtroom, how they're summoned and selected, what barriers remained to their service, and, and what role peremptory strikes played if any, in uh, leading to uh, less representative juries. And so we studied the proposals and the task force recommended abolishing peremptory strikes. And before that report was published, the Supreme Court issued their order abolishing peremptory strikes. Thank you, Mr. Head. Uh, let's turn to uh, to Ryan Green. Mr. Green, no one has disputed that lawyers use peremptory challenges in order to pick a jury that will be favorable to their arguments. Peremptory challenges are designed to allow lawyers to use their intuition, even if that intuition might be ultimately grounded in a stereotype or unconscious bias. Do you have concern that the complete abolition of peremptory challenges could have unintended and undesirable consequences? Uh, and if so, what do you think those might be? What do you think the, uh, the potential uh, uh, pitfalls might be with this rule change by the Arizona Supreme Court? Thank you. I definitely do have concerns about unintended consequences. And I think the biggest concern that I have as a prosecutor 
is that there may be an increase in deadlocked juries. And, you know, there's traditionally been this gap between a juror who meets the legal standard and has to be removed because they cannot be fair as a matter of law versus the juror who simply has strong opinions or sympathies, which of course is, is common. Now, I, I agree with you know Kevin, for example, that peremptory challenges can be infected by unconscious bias. And certainly peremptory challenges are imprecise, as you mentioned, uh, often re, you know, depends upon intuition, but they did at times have the advantage of working to remove people who maybe had extreme opinions on either side of an issue. So one of my concerns is that if a jury now has two people or more with very strong and polar opposite viewpoints, it may make unanimous agreement much harder to come by, which of course is in, a, in the criminal uh, world, you know, juries must be unanimous to reach a verdict. So I think that that is probably the one unintended consequence that a number of us are concerned about. Uh, we're also, I think, debating about whether or not this change is going to increase the the amount of time needed to complete jury selection. It's an interesting discussion because by eliminating peremptories, you're taking out a process, which would normally lead you to conclude that it ought to be shorter. However, now that we have gotten rid of peremptory strikes, the focus is now going to turn sharply on whether a juror is legally too biased to serve, whether they meet that legal standard. So that means we're going to have to obtain more information from each juror than we typically have in the past. And with more information, a, a number of us are wondering whether or not the process might take longer than it currently does to process all that information. Um, and then another, uh, I suppose, un either unintended consequence or potential challenge is that I do think there's gonna be some very intense debate and even litigation on the issue of where you draw the line between a fair juror and a juror who, as a matter of law, is simply too biased to serve. So those are some of the things that are, are swimming through the minds of a number of us on the prosecution side. Thank you, Mr. Green. Uh, now I'd like to turn it over to Judge Cohen. Judge Cohen, some have said that the practical effect of abolishing peremptory challenges may be that judges will be more likely to accept challenges for cause in order to ensure that there isn't even an appearance that a potential juror will be unfair or partial to one side or the other. Do you think this will be a challenge for those on the bench moving forward? Well, before I say yes or no to that question, you know, there has to be a culture shift because for the 20 plus years I've been in this field, every judge I've ever appeared in front of and myself, we're always trying to rehabilitate those jurors, right? When we hear something that's probably on the on the edge of, of what could be a cause strike, we're trying to rehabilitate them. So that everyone knows there's a task force or work group, whatever you want to call it, going on now statewide and in Maricopa County to deal with this very issue. There were a couple PhD folks that have been um, utilized. I think Mr. Green is on both committees, if I'm right, both the statewide and the, the um, 
Maricopa one. I'm on the Maricopa one. And they're really working to figure out what are the best types of questions that we can ask jurors to figure out if they have some sort of bias, some sort of a tendency to lean to one side or sympathize with one side or the other. How is the best way to get to that information? And one of the ways we're trying to figure out how to do that is through questionnaires and utilizing a questionnaire process as opposed and including not just opposed to utilizing a questionnaire process and questioning them in person in the courtroom. So we're trying to figure out how we get to that information. The other thing is we're going to be training judicial officers and lawyers on how to use that information and how to ask better questions to get to the heart of the matter. Asking, from what I'm understanding from the PhD folks, asking a juror, can they be fair and impartial? They're going to say yes, because who's going to admit that they can't be fair and impartial? But figuring out a better way to ask those questions. But there does have to be a culture shift, and this is going to require some training across the board for everyone. Do I think that we're going to be more lenient in granting requests for cause? Yeah, I think we are. I think at least initially, until we figure out a way to ask better questions, and then it won't be such a you know, one side versus the other, where one side's asking for a juror to be struck for cause and the other side is saying, no, that juror isn't isn't biased or it doesn't have some sympathy or prejudice towards the other side. I think the better questions that we ask, I think both sides will say, yeah, we get it, that juror um, should be struck because they, they will tend to lean and favor one side versus the other. So it's going to be a learning process and we hope to have those questionnaires in place. We hope to be able to train the judges, I mean, this takes place in January. So we've got, what, a month and change, two months before we can, um, before to to get this going. So I, I think yes is the short answer to that. But I think as we get through this process, it may be that we're just learning how to ask better questions. Thank you, Judge Cohen. Let me open it up to, to all of you for a kind of a general question about what justice will be achieved by this rule change. One can see that the elimination of peremptory challenges uh, may well have been on the uh, writing on the wall uh, ever since um, uh, Batson, and that the ultimate decision by the Arizona Supreme Court to eliminate peremptory challenges was just simply the end result of a process that was inevitably going to fail. A entirely different perspective might be that it is solving uh, a problem, but not the entire problem, and that although you may be able to change the way in which jurors are selected from a panel, the real problem is the entire pool from which jurors are drawn and the way in which that pool is skewed, either based on class or potentially based on race and other classifications. What are your thoughts? What will this rule uh, change have in terms of achieving uh, greater justice and fairness in Arizona criminal justice? I can speak to a couple of those points. Please. Um, <clears throat> starting with the last point first, uh, the, the task force on jury selection, data collection, practice and procedures looked at the whole picture. And I know that the Arizona Supreme Court is committed to ensuring that the process for getting the jurors to court is fair and results in a fair cross-section of members of our communities serving on juries. And so there, there's a recommendation that we made to change the the summons process to a one-step process so that folks that uh, move a lot or are, are traditionally statistically less likely to appear through a two-step process, uh, make it to court through that summons process. Uh, there's recommendations to increase the uh, compensation for the daily compensation for jurors 
so that people uh, aren't subject to hardship from serving on jury selection uh, or jury service, sorry. Uh, and there's a recommendation put forth that caregivers be compensated uh, for their time on jury service, um, whereas like uh, in other jurisdictions for, for caring for children at home so they can find substitute caregiving um, options if they're selected to serve. And so it is, it is a big picture issue as to who serves on the juries, but uh, within the task force, we looked at from start to finish and made recommendations to improve that representation. Um, as it relates to what, what the issues are with the jury selection process itself, this, this will require a culture shift. Uh, and what has come out of the abolition of peremptories is a candid assessment that the procedures that we were using to select juries in the past were insufficient. There was the questioning was close-ended and leading and led to unreliable answers from jurors as to whether they could be fair and impartial. So it's really refreshing to see that we're getting this academic input and that judges and attorneys are embracing it and recognizing that we need to change the way that we ask questions and find out who is qualified to serve. And that's come about through the end of peremptories. And the concern that, uh, that lingers is what role does implicit bias continue to play in the way that these questions are asked and these answers are assessed? And that's going to be part of the training that uh, attorneys and ju judicial officers are going to be uh, undertaking over the next year and for years to come, is to be aware of how implicit bias will continue to play a role in every decision we make and will continue to play a role in the questions that we ask jurors and the way that we view those answers. And so I'm, I'm celebrating this culture shift because we had a problem uh, from the way that we selected juries in the past. And this is going to lead to uh, a lot of critical self-reflection as to what the problems were. And there's a lot of eager uh, and uh, excitement and energy towards figuring out a way to make sure that uh, in a world without peremptories, which were a safety net, uh, a safety net for um, the litigants to, to choose fair uh, juries, what would that world look like and how can we implement it? If I can follow up on something that Mr. Head said, what's interesting is that the folks you have on this um, podcast are all in the criminal world, right? Mr. Head, you're a, you're a criminal defense attorney. Mr. Green's a prosecutor. I'm a former prosecutor and now I'm on the criminal bench. And to follow up on what he just said, and it's, it's really interesting, in the criminal world in jury selection, he, you're absolutely right. The questions have always been very close-ended. Um, you're looking for a specific fact, and we've been trained to do that. My husband is a civil lawyer and is a civil trial lawyer, and his view of jury selection is very different. And they train on exactly what Mr. Head is saying, the open-ended questions, looking for more information, trying to get that implicit bias. And I wonder if the criminal world would be helped in spending some time with some civil trial lawyers to figure out better ways to ask questions. The, one of the questions asked earlier about the two preemptories, I haven't seen a real shift in the last year with the lawyers asking better questions when they only get two preemptories. Nothing has really changed. So I think the shift isn't just on the bench. I think it's with the lawyers as well. They need to figure out how to do a better job asking those open-ended questions to get exactly at what Mr. Head was talking about. Thank you, Judge Cohen. And, you know, from one of the things, I've, I'll, I'll admit that I probably would have preferred a more incremental approach, um, but we're here. And so, like Kevin said, he mentioned, you know, that there is this eagerness and excitement. 
And I, I agree, there's definitely this excitement of being the first state to try this. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of the, the phrase that in federalism, the states are the laboratories of democracy. And so, you know, it, it is exciting that we are at the forefront, despite the fact that, yes, I do have my degree of nervousness about how this is all going to play out. But one thing that is definitely positive that I really do look forward to with this change is the culture shift of how we think about selecting juries. It really has, unfortunately, been, in, at least in some cases, about tactics. You know, I think, Eric, you mentioned, you know, uh, it's the idea of trying to get a juror who will be most favorable to the arguments made by one side. And now the focus is going to be on getting just fair jurors. So it takes the, the tactics, or it should take the tactics and the gamesmanship to the extent that it was existing, it will take that out of the process. And that is definitely something that uh, appeals to me. And, um, and I'm definitely interested in seeing how that plays out. I definitely like the idea of asking the open-ended questions. And like Judge Cohen said, that's going to be a culture shift. I think it's going to be a culture shift, not just for attorneys, but also for judges. I mean, the, the standard uh, follow-up rehabilitation type questions, such as, you know, do you believe that you can set that aside and still be fair and impartial? And I, I think it was Judge Cohen who mentioned that, of course, jurors want to believe that they can be fair and impartial and will answer yes. So now we're really going to be focused on just getting the information. The challenge is going to become uh, how do we process that information and how do we determine whether or not a juror has reached that threshold, wherever it may be, you know, to decide that they can no longer serve on the jury, that they are simply uh, too favorable to one side or the other. So these are all things that I think we're just going to have to wait and see how it starts playing out in, in courtrooms uh, across the state. Well, while I have the opportunity to have three uh, leaders uh, in the legal community in Arizona and Maricopa County, and with, particularly with regards to these issues, let me, let me make, a, uh, let me make a, a, an argument and see what your thoughts are. A traditional argument in favor of peremptory challenges often made by those who are in defense bar is the ability to persuade or to have their client be persuaded that the jury itself was fair. And that ability to use a peremptory challenge to strike somebody because your client, quote unquote, didn't like the cut of his jib, unquote, had some great value in uh, ensuring that the individual who's on trial accepts the ultimate consequence. Why isn't that still a very valid argument in favor of peremptory challenges, at least in a limited sense? And then I might add for from, from a prosecutor's perspective that maybe the peremptory challenges should be limited and maybe they should be limited to the defense that the same kind of argument shouldn't be allowed to be made by the government. Anyone on that on, on that question? I've got thoughts on that. Um, Peace. Uh, this, this, the National Lawyers Guild, uh, the organization that filed the original petition to adopt the Washington rule, in response to Judge Swan and Judge McMurdy's petition, um, we did file a comment uh, supporting the Washington rule, but also recommending just what you're saying and recognizing that if you look at 
the extension of peremptory strikes historically to the state and to the government, that didn't occur until after the passage of the 14th Amendment, at least not in the numbers that we see today. And it didn't occur until after uh, the 14th Amendment applied to challenges of the pool. And so we, there's a historical uh, reality that once courts began looking at the composition of jury pools for violations of the 14th Amendment, intentional discrimination of who's, who's called to serve, we, just, we see the state and the government getting more peremptory strikes. And so there, there is a historical connection of the 14th Amendment to the use of peremptories by the state. And if the concern is was discrimination in criminal trials, then the remedy would be just to take the strikes from the prosecution. And that was what was recommended as maybe a starting point for the court to consider. Uh, the court didn't go that route, and the defense bar is, is not united as to whether or not the abolition of peremptory strikes is desirable. Um, as, as a member of the board of uh, governors or directors for Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice, I conducted a survey of our membership, and the majority of our membership opposed abolishing peremptory strikes, and a lot of them had reasons that you referenced. The, the idea of a defendant participating in selecting and choosing who their judge will be, who the juries are that will be judging the, the defendant, is an, is an age-old idea in our system of justice. But um, ultimately, I was persuaded that if faced with the option of continuing with the status quo, with the, with the, the failure of Batson to root out discrimination in jury selection, or to just completely abolish peremptories, it's more beneficial for criminal defendants to be tried by juries in a way that that selection is free from discrimination. And, uh, and tactically speaking, point going back to something that uh, Ryan was talking about, although we need a unanimous jury to, have, to get an acquittal, the state needs a unanimous jury to obtain a conviction. And uh, the criticism of Batson is, is that if, if a prosecutor had the nefarious intent to, to strike jurors based on race, sex, or gender. Uh, they only need to strike one juror to get, to get rid of that juror in a, in a way that could impact the outcome of a case. And so by, by eliminating that possibility uh, from, from the fold, assuming that bias and implicit bias in particular doesn't fold over into the cause process, this will be a net benefit for criminal defendants uh, because um, if Batson has failed, Eliminating peremptories is the way to go. So one of my thoughts you know, when it comes to the notion of, well, should, as Kevin mentioned, you know, historically, the the peremptory challenge was something that was given to the defense. It wasn't until after the 14th Amendment was ratified that you started seeing, um, you know, state legislatures extending the peremptory, I believe, to uh, to prosecution. Um, although I do believe, I think prior to us becoming a country, there was some precedent um, in common law uh, for uh, there being uh, peremptories by the prosecution. But regardless, now we're at this point, you know, you asked the question, what about removing peremptories from the prosecution, but leaving some with the defense? And I think the reason we're now beyond that, I think we've been beyond that for a while. When you look at the Batson case and the cases that came after, um, I believe one of them was uh, Georgia v. McCollum, um, which extended the ruling in Batson or the whole the holding a holding in Batson to defendants' strikes. And you know the idea is that if we are concerned, you know that the peremptory strike can be infected 
with bias, then it really is no consolation to the juror who is discriminated against uh, that the strike was made by a different party or somebody other than the prosecution. So I, I think that the idea is that it would be unfair for a juror, no matter what, to be struck for an improper uh, reason or based on an improper bias, regardless of which side strikes them. So that's why I, um, I you know, as the prosecutor on, on this panel here, yes, I, I would not support the idea of, you know, simply removing peremptory challenges from the state, but leaving that uh, ability with the defense. Well, and to follow up on that, don't forget about victims' rights. So victims have a right under our constitution and they have just as much right for a fair trial as the defense. And so to, to piggyback on what Mr. Green said, to, you know, implicit bias can exist on both sides of the aisle. It's not just one side. So we need to make sure that if, if we're going to watch for it, it's got to be watched for it in the entire courtroom, not just on one side. So I, I just don't think eliminating them from one eliminating them from the prosecution and not the defense is going to get to the root of what we need to to solve. Well, that brings us to the end of our time today. We want to thank our guests for a fascinating and really enlightening discussion. The Honorable Suzanne Cohen, Associate Presiding Criminal Judge of the Maricopa County Superior Court. Ryan Green, Division Chief for Training and Post-Conviction Review with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office. And Kevin Head, Appellate Attorney with the Maricopa County Office of the Public Defender. Thanks also to my co-host, Ashley Otto, and our producer, Amina Ketchen-Kamel. This podcast is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.